We are picking up our Sermon on the Mount talks in Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. If you have not gotten one of these books or if you just lost it, we have plenty. Um, We have more if you want to follow along. It just has a space for notes and um, just uh, breaks down the talks page by page. So Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their full reward. So if you're praying to show off, you've gotten your reward, you've been seen. And Jesus is saying that's about all you're going to get if that's your only motivation Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you, or a more literal translation, will restore you. Then he goes, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In the time Jesus was alive, uh, many non-Jews used multiple prayers that were like formulas. We saw some of this um, in the story of Elijah. You remember they're dancing, they're cutting themselves, they're trying to do more and more extreme things to get their God's attention. They would say things over and over um, in their anxiety, not even sure which God or goddess they should be praying to. There were many divinities, and in the ancient pagan world, N.T. Wright says, nobody quite knew which one might need pacifying next or with what formula. Also, in the time of Jesus, the Jews already had patterns of prayer. Three times a day, these short, powerful prayers, we see Daniel Um, prayed these throughout his life. Um, In Tiny Tots, they're learning about Daniel praying three times and actually getting thrown in the lion's den because of it. So I don't think that Jesus is knocking um, group prayer or fixed hour prayer at certain times in the day when we were in Israel. um, And we went in Israel and Jordan, so uh, primarily Jewish and then Muslim countries. And it was amazing to see entire cultures centered around prayer. At the Western Wall, you'd see men, they have to gather in groups of about 10, preferably, to pray. And there would be people grouping everywhere. Or during Ramadan in Jordan, there would be times when everyone would just stop and pray. And it was amazing coming from a Western culture where we don't see a culture marked around prayer in the same way. So I don't think that that's what Jesus is knocking. But... So we're not praying to be seen, and we're not praying to make a good impression or look um, like we know what's going on. And we're not trying to say the right thing in a way to convince God to take us seriously. We're to go into silence and solitude for God to restore us. Then Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Say it with me if you know it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Thank you. 
It goes on, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would teach us to pray. That in this time, we ask that um, you would push back any barriers or darkness around our hearts that would keep us from hearing the words that you have to say, the truths that you have to tell. And we just ask that um, we can meditate on your word, that we can know you better, and that we can enter into your presence as we talk today in your name. Amen. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and more specifically, in the middle of this section where Jesus is talking about the three pillars of Jewish tradition. Giving to the needy, as we heard last week, prayer, and then fasting. With all three, Jesus is assuming that you're already doing each. So we'll all deal with that when we get to fasting next week. But his comments, like most things on the Sermon on the Mount, look deeper at the motive and at the way that you're doing things. And prayer is no exception. N.T. Wright had a great quote about prayer I found this week. It says, prayer is one of life's great mysteries. Most people pray, at least sometimes, some people in many Different religions pray a great deal. At its lowest, prayer is a shouting into the void on the off chance that there might be someone out there listening. At its highest, prayer merges into love as the presence of God becomes so real that we pass beyond words and into a sense of his reality, generosity, delight, and grace. For most Christians, most of the time, it takes place somewhere between these two extremes. Prayer can be really confusing. It is really confusing. Even the most educated, well-studied theologians who agree with each other know that they cannot understand how prayer really works. We know that we are asked to do it throughout the scriptures. There's beautiful verses like in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all your circumstances for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. So we can all basically agree in all of Christendom, that we are supposed to pray. Actually, most religions will agree that prayer is something that you're supposed to do, but after that, it gets a little bit foggy. There's so much that we could talk about in this passage about prayer, but I want to spend the majority of our time clearing up a few things about prayer. Some things I've come to learn in recent years that have been so helpful for me to understanding why Jesus and the writers of the New and Old Testament ask us to pray. We hear all kinds of messages about prayer. We hear, um, like, God is sovereign, or God is in control. Prayer is more of a way to connect with God than it is to change things in the world. Everything happens for a reason. Prayer is a way to change our hearts, not God's mind. And they all sound really good on the surface. They offer a level of comfort, even, This way of thinking in theology, it's called meticulous providence. Can you say that? Meticulous providence, which is a really fancy word of saying the sovereignty of God. So full disclosure, the next part on the sovereignty of God, I've pulled mostly verbatim from a talk John Mark Comer gave in San Francisco a few years ago, but it articulated so well what I believe on the topic that um, I used a lot of it here. You should definitely listen to it. If you'd like the reference, come find me after the talk. But the basic idea is that God is sovereign and he controls every single detail of the universe. 
He's meticulous at literally every single thing that happens. Put another way, everything that happens is the will of God. Now, there are arguments that say this way of thinking was not around for the first 400 years of church. In the early church, this was not the way of thinking about the will of God. But what they meant in the early church is that God's will meant God's moral intention for the universe. Like God's intention, when you think of like the Garden of Eden, God's intention was one man, one woman, together until death. His intention was no death at all, actually. They were supposed to be able to eat from the tree of life. They were supposed to live in paradise. Work was not something that was not, I mean, there's a huge list of things that would be God's moral intention for the universe. But after Augustine in the fourth century and John Calvin in the Reformation and some other people, what they talked about when they talked about God's will, what they meant was God's control of the universe. And that's a very different idea. When something happens, you say, oh, it must have been God's will. You've probably said that. Or, oh, and it doesn't happen. You go, oh, I guess it wasn't God's will. Cancer must have been God's will. Can't have children when you really wanted them. Must have not been God's will. Rape, also God. God is in control. God has a plan. Everything happens for a reason. And a lot of people honestly believe this. If we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us have believed some version of this. And it was really shattering for me a few years ago when I began researching the topic and found that the majority of Christian teachers that I respected and followed um, shared this belief. And I think that they're wrong. I think this perspective of God is really dangerous. Not only do I think it is at odds with the teachings of Jesus and the Old and New Testament, but I think it's a really terrifying view of God. Because on the front end, this way of thinking, it gives you a lot of comfort. Like, oh man, yeah, this is really bad, um, but God's in control. Like, everything happens for a reason. Okay, I just have to wait and see what the reason is. But then on the back end, this view gives you a crisis of faith. God is sovereign, but my child was born with cerebral palsy. Is God sovereign over that? God's in control, okay, but my college daughter was just raped on campus. Is God in control of that? God has a plan. The foster child you've had in your home since birth goes back to a home where you're almost sure that abuse will continue. God is sovereign. Everything happens for a reason, but now I've been through a divorce, and it's been five years, 10 years, 20 years, and I really don't see any good out of it. Everything happens for a reason. Do you see that on the front end, there's this comfort. Oh, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Because we want to know that somebody is in control. If not us, then God. But then on the back end, God in your mind's eye, in your imagination, becomes a moral monster. This leads you to a toxic view of what God is like because you think that God is responsible for all sorts of things, not only the good in your life, but also the evil so with great respect for the Reformed tradition, and there are so many Christian leaders in the Western world who believe this way, I do not believe this at all. The Adventist tradition does not believe this at all, and the leadership of Compass does not believe this way. To me, it's really important if we're going to have a conversation about how to have meaningful prayer, we must understand who God is. Otherwise, we're left with questions like these and our prayer life suffers. If God's all-powerful, why is there human suffering? If God already knows what I need before I ask, then why am I asking? 
If God's going to do what he wants anyway, why would I ask him, without ceasing also, to do what I want instead? Jesus' example of prayer gives us so much insight into the purpose of prayer. It gives us a glimpse into the way things are. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why ask God for that if God's will is already happening all the time? In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Jesus is talking and he said, or not Jesus, um, Paul is talking and he says, then the end will come when he stands over the king, hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So for Paul... The writer of a huge chunk of the New Testament, death is not God's will, but flat out God's enemy. In his view, God is at war with evil, not in collusion with it. It means that all sorts of things happen every single day that are not God's will at all. In fact, that are deeply at odds and against God's will. Yes, God is all powerful and all good, but I would argue that God does not always get his way. You have to factor in the reality that human beings and spiritual beings have free will to either partner with God for all that is good and beautiful and true or to rebel and rage against God. The world is a terrifyingly free, beautiful, wild, dangerous place and evil is the byproduct of that creative freedom. When I open up my Bible and I read from Genesis all the way through to the end, I don't see a God that's in control of every single detail of the universe at all. I see a God in control of some things, but I see a God who created the world out of love. But this world has been overrun by a hostile alien invader that goes by the name of evil. As John writes, the whole world is under the control, not of Jesus, he writes, but of the evil one. Let that sink in for a minute. The news makes a lot more sense in that perspective. The whole world is under control of the evil one. He writes that after Jesus' death and resurrection. And when I read the story of God, I see a God who is at war with this evil one and who through the suffering, love, and sacrifice of his son, Jesus and his family, his sons and daughters, you and me, this God is at work to overcome evil and in time to usher the kingdom of God in once and for all. But in the meantime, planet Earth is the site of a war, a great controversy. It's the site of a battlefield and there's collateral damage all over the place. There are many wills at play, Satan's will, God's will, the will of spiritual beings, both good and bad, my will, your will, the Walmart shooter's will, and Glenn Oakley, an El Paso man who carried as many children out of Walmart to safety as he could. There's the will of the Democrats and the will of the Republicans and the will of the rest of us who just wonder what the heck is going on. Jesus acknowledges these many wills in His prayer framework, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is an idea behind the prayer model that Jesus gives us, that he is asking us to partner with him and his father to bring about his will on earth. 
Not to ask him for what already is, but to join him in bringing it about through prayer. A lot of times we would think of, you know, you pray for what you really want, and then you're like, but whatever you want, whatever your will is, God. It's kind of like this cop-out in case you don't get it. I don't think that that's what Jesus means when he says pray for his will to be done. The question is not, does he want your child to be healed? Does he want peace in the Middle East? Does he want there to be reactors melting and cashmere with no power? That's not the question. The question is for us, are we willing to partner with him to bring his will over the whole earth? Do we believe that his will will eventually be over the whole earth? There's this weird story in Daniel 10 where Daniel has this vision of this great war to come. So he goes into these three weeks of fasting and praying, just totally laid out in anguish. And finally, this spiritual messenger arrives and begins talking to Daniel. And it's this weird kind of story. The messenger says, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. What? In this story, I believe we get a little glimpse of the spiritual world. So God tells Daniel there's going to be this great war. Daniel begins praying about the war, and immediately heaven begins responding. But on their way to Daniel, the spiritual king of Persia detained the messenger until finally Michael, the archangel, has finally come to help the messenger get to Daniel, and he arrives 21 days later. We see a complex behind-the-scenes framework of what happens when we pray. It's not a simple matter of yes, no, or wait a while. No, instead we have Daniel's will, we have God's will, we have the messenger's will, we have the spiritual prince of Persia's will, we have Michael's will, all converging on this one event that Daniel was praying about. But in this story, Daniel continued to pray, and one could gather that maybe because he continued to pray, the messenger finally got through to him. Wow. Maybe prayer really matters. I remember a conversation with a friend about five years ago, and we were just talking through some of these things in prayer, and one of us at one point said, what if prayer is just angels moving? What if God, who has the power to flood the earth or to burn it up, to heal the sick, the lame, and raise the dead, loves us so much that he respects our free will? What if God restrains himself by allowing us to act outside of his will because he wants a true relationship with humanity? For some of us, that's a really uncomfortable idea. We feel a loss of security in the idea that God is in control of all these details. And to be clear, I do believe God is ultimately in control. I just don't think that every detail of life is something that God caused. For many years, a subconscious thought I had that maybe prayers weren't too important. God's going to do what he likes. I can give him my opinion, but, you know, that's about it. Or even on the other end of the spectrum, feeling like, well, I guess people have free will, and God's not going to mess with that too much, so why, why pray that he does? 
Or I'm supposed to pray all the time, but that must be more for like our relationship or something. Because, I mean, doesn't that actually show, show disrespect to ask for something over and over? Like my boss at work, if I ask him like, hey, can you do this for me or can I get this? I don't come back five minutes later and say the same thing. Hey, can you do this for me? And then an hour later, hey, can you do this for me? And then the next day, like that would just be so weird. That would not be a smart work move or just downright disrespectful to continue to ask for something over and over and over. So why would I do that to God? But the more I've studied, the more I've learned, I've come to realize that my prayers could be massively important. That the questions I was asking weren't even formed around how prayer works. That things are much more complex than I made them out to be. What if someone I love has used their free will to reject God? So think of that person. I'm sure we all know someone that we love that's rejected God. God might respect that person's choice after a certain amount of time. Kind of quit, quit trying to go after them if they keep saying no, no, no. Eventually God's going to respect that and leave them alone. But what if you use your free will and ask God to continue working in that person's life? What if there are spiritual beings who want to enact God's will on earth now, but they're just waiting in the wings until for the people of God to ask? What if I thought of prayer less like a yes or no question to a distant God and more like a battle in which my role is very important? When I read the scriptures and really just live in the world, I see times when the people of God prayed fervently for something to happen and it did not happen. Where God's will was not brought to fruition in the situation. I also see times when the people of God prayed and everything changed. The sickness was healed, the dead were raised, the son came to believe, the baby was okay, the marriage was saved, everything changed. I believe in the age to come, when we get a chance to ask our questions, we'll be amazed, both by the things that were prevented because God's people prayed, and by the things that could have been prevented but weren't because nobody asked. We don't always get to know the outcomes. We don't get to see our place in the battle. We don't know if the thing we're praying for is the thing that will turn the tide, how many spiritual forces care about what we're praying about. It's not tidy or simple or easy, it's mystical and mysterious and tremendously uncomfortable to believe in a culture that has ruled out the supernatural in the favor of science and feelings. The prayer Jesus gave to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount is a master model. More like a framework than an incantation, it's not magical or overly simplistic. It's expansive, it's all-encompassing, it's Jewish meditation literature at its finest which means that we could continue to study and recite and read it all of our lives and gain new insight each time. As you practice Jesus' way of praying, know that it matters. Despite contradictory theological beliefs in Christendom and a culture that has rendered prayer as meaningless, prayer is a contending for the holiness of God on earth. It's a way for us to use our free will to bring about God's will in the world. Prayer is a bullet in the gun in the war to save the world. And like any battle, you do not know how strategic your role is until it's over.
It is an untying of the hands of God to bring about his kingdom in the world. It is a tipping of the scales in in the favor of the kingdom of heaven. There has never been a more important work. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father in heaven, we thank you that there's a place where your will is done, where everything is perfect. And we thank you that you sit high on that throne, God. And we just ask that your name would be made holy on earth, in our church, in our hearts, that your name would be lifted high, that you would take your rightful place, God. We ask that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done. As we look at our world, we see so many things in places where that's necessary. In Kashmir, may it be as it is in heaven. In El Paso, in Russia, where people died due to a nuclear reactor. Encompass as it is in heaven, Lord, we ask that you would be king. In our families, in our hearts, in the places that we work, we ask that your will would be done. We ask that you give us enough for today. For most of us, that's not food. Um, It goes beyond that, but we know throughout our world that's true, that people just need bread for today, God, and we pray for that. We ask that you would forgive us. We ask that as we are forgiven, that we learn to forgive, that we take you at face value, what you said about enemy love, and that you give us the courage, the vulnerability, and the strength to forgive the people that have hurt us. And lead us not into temptation, In a world, in a Western world especially, that is all but denied you, we ask that you keep us focused on you. Where distraction is prevalent, where it's not always obvious to us that we're being separated from you, God, we just ask that that you give us a renewed focus. That you do not let us be overcome. And we thank you and we praise you and we ask, and we, we just love that you are on the throne, God. We claim that today, and as we are alive in this war called earth, we, we ask that you would help us believe that. When we don't believe, help our unbelief. In your name, amen.